Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. You know, some of that is, of course, unpreventable, right? I mean, you lose one of the most important people in your world. Uh, Of course, you're going to feel deep pain. I think it was exacerbated by the lack of wisdom and compassion in our culture, the lack of, of, um, as Darrell would say, a lack of tenderness in the world Mm -hmm. uh, that haunted me. Mm -hmm. Uh, People who, you know, were urging me, well, just have another child or uh, God only takes the best or it was part of God's plan or uh, at least it wasn't your oldest who died or (laughs) the really... Uh, yeah, the outrageous things that people say. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Welcome back. Today, we are going to be talking about an important life skill that there really are no lessons for. We're not taught this in school. Nobody likes to talk about it. The therapists who are willing to talk about it usually have to do quite a bit of shadow work themselves. And the subject matter that we're going to be talking about today is grief. I am bringing this episode up in production because of some of the recent events. We are just at the beginning of February 2020. And of course, last week, we lost a major superstar, tragically, Kobe Bryant and his beautiful daughter, Gianna, as well as several other families that were in a helicopter crash that claimed their lives. And what I see is people just don't know what to do with the information. It is so sad. It is so terrifying. And I wanted to speak to Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, who is my guest today, around grief and around her frameworks that she has developed around grief. So just to give you a little bit of background on her, Dr. Joanne is a research professor at Arizona State. She is the founder on the Miss Foundation and Sella Care Farm, which is a farm that has animals and there's lots of meditation and yoga practices there. And we discuss Sella Care Farm in our discussion today. And she is the best-selling author of Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief. In our discussion today, we talked about traumatic grief, and this is Joanne's specialty. So dealing with traumatic grief, so she, as she defines it, this is an unexpected death. 
In her case, she shared her story of giving birth to her daughter and her daughter dying shortly thereafter. And that is what catapulted her into this research because at the time when this happened, there wasn't a body of work around how to deal with traumatic grief. The therapist that she was seeing, the people around her were just like, you know, get over it and offering some of these platitudes around, you know, an angel, heaven gained an angel and all these sort of things. So we talked about traumatic grief. We talked about the different stages of grief and how we may revisit those over time. So, you know, you're initially shocked. There's guilt, there's pain, there's anger, depression, uh, bargaining, and how we may cycle through these over and again. We talked about how to explain death to children. And I thought that this was a profound part of our conversation. And I shared with her when my grandmother passed away, how I shared that my grandmother, who uh, in Lebanese, we call her Sito, how Sito was not breathing and her heart wasn't um, beating anymore. And you know, she had given me some feedback in terms of how to appropriately discuss death with children and also how they deal because children deal with death and grief very differently than adults. So she unpacked that for us. We also spoke about the differences between men and women being able to cope and how we as a society really don't trust ourselves with grief. It's something that's completely terrifying to us. We don't trust ourselves to be able to sit with the pain. So we dive into you know, work or we dive into other activities, which sets us up for an increased risk for uh, addictive behaviors down the line. We just had such an important conversation. And like I said, I brought this up in production because I wanted to give people tools, whether you are dealing with, when you hear tragedies like Kobe Bryant's death and his daughter and the other families that were on the helicopter, or you're dealing with traumatic grief or even just grief, um, this is something that is not talked about. And I thought that she unpacked and delivered the frameworks and the tactics for being able to deal with it and move through it rather than trying to get around it. The one thing I wanted to mention as well is if you are finding the conversations useful, I have now put together my show notes for each episode and I am sharing them with you. So if you want to see the show notes that I'm preparing, you can go to bettershow.co forward slash show notes. That's S-H-O-W-N-O-T-E-S. And what you'll receive is all the science-backed resources that I've prepared for better living. So you'll receive my notes on from my prescription pad, studies, as I mentioned, my interpretations of those studies, personal best practices, what I have learned from each guest and how to implement the information from each episode. So if you're interested in that, in addition to the podcast, uh, just go to bettershow.co forward slash show notes. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. I am a huge fan of the BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level 
level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. You and I, Joanne, were introduced through a mutual friend, through Eric uh, Kerr, and uh, we both spoke on his uh, Healing Addiction Summit together. Yeah. And when I was asking him, I said, you know, I really want to do a topic on trauma, getting over trauma and grief. You know, there's a couple names that came up, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, and you came up, and there's a a few other practitioners. So I'm really excited to be speaking to you today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And this is going to be a really important conversation because this is a life skill. When we're talking about grief and the process of grieving and how you know, the individual goes through grief as well as how the community reacts to someone who's grieving, this is a life skill that we're not taught. No one talks, about, there's no class about this in school. Um, you know, there's the therapists that are willing to talk about it. I mean, they have to do an incredible amount of shadow work themselves to, to be, you know, to be able to hold the space to hear some of these stories. And I really want to talk about all types of grief, but I also want to really hone in on your clinical expertise, which is surrounding uh, traumatic grief. So before, before we dive into that, maybe you can share with the listeners, you know, your own story um, we always talk about origin stories. I don't know if I want to call this an origin story, but 
you know, your, your, your experience with traumatic grief and potentially what catapulted you into this line of work? Sure. Absolutely. So, um, I, I've had a lot of loss in my life. Uh, both my parents were dead before I was 37. Um, and I've lost friends and partners. Uh, the death that really, uh, unhinged me for me was the death of my daughter in 1994. Um, I had three other living children at the time and she died very suddenly and unexpectedly. And I spiraled downward into a very, very, very dark place. Um, and, you know, some of that is, of course, unpreventable, right? I mean, you lose one of the most important people in your world. Uh, of course, you're going to feel deep pain. I think it was exacerbated by the lack of wisdom and compassion in our culture, the lack of, of um, as Darrell would say, a lack of tenderness in the world mm -hmm. uh, that haunted me. Mm -hmm. uh, people who, you know, were urging me, well, just have another child or uh, God only takes the best or it was part of God's plan or uh, at least it wasn't your oldest who died or <laughs> the oh, really, no. out, yeah, oh, the no. outrageous things that people say uh, because they're uncomfortable. Because, as you said, we don't train people, uh, not just about grief, but about hard emotions anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, in my book, I call it the happiness cult. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we do, we, we have this sort of uh, conscious or unconscious belief system that we're supposed to be happy all the time. And we're supposed to feel good all the time. And that's really doing a great disservice to us as, as sentient beings. It's... Uh, in a sense, marginalizing our own real authentic internal processes of pain. Yes. And so when we have pain, we think there's something wrong with us. And so does everyone else. Right. So mm -hmm. I was met with, you know, not only verbal platitudes and cliches, but I was also met with just think about something else or let's go have a drink, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's, probably not the most prudent thing to, to offer someone in the depth of their despair is, is some kind of a chemical substance to alter their real feelings, right? We're not right. teaching people how to stay with their feelings and how to stay with their pain. And so I uh, spiraled downward into a very dark place. I weighed less than 90 pounds within three months. I was very, very small. I couldn't I literally can remember, and this was a very somatic experience because traumatic grief especially is a very bodily experience. It's yes. cellular. You can feel it. I used to tell people my whole body hurts from the tip of my hairs to the tips of my toes, right? And so I would explain that to people and they just, they didn't conceptually grasp that unless they'd had traumatic loss themselves. And I remember having a lump in my throat, a constant lump in my throat. I couldn't eat. I couldn't swallow food because it was just this tightness in my throat. And so I, I didn't eat for a very, very long time. I ate very, very small amounts of food. And so I was very, very tiny and not coping very well. And, you know, part of that was the social system. Part of that was the fact that what people were telling me I should feel versus what I really felt, which I knew in my heart, were completely congruent. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I was not met with compassion. And that was a really terrifying, hard place to be. So I had three other children to take care of, all under the age of eight. Um, 
How old were your children when you lost Cheyenne, your, your daughter? Eight, yeah, they were eight, six, and three. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, I had to take care of them. And so I would do the best I could. And then I would, as soon as I would get them off to school or uh, in my daughter's case, preschool, I would, I would sob. I would just sob. I, I was just incapacitated. It took all the energy I had to try to take care of them. And there was very little practical or especially emotional support around me. Yeah. And I was reading, so the book uh, that you're referring to uh, is called Bearing uh, the Unbearable. And I was reading in here when you were going to different therapists within, you know, five, you had gone to three different therapists and I don't know what the time frame was, but they sure. were, they all wanted to, you know, prescribe you medication. And I think the last therapist, you were trying to show him pictures of your daughter and he just didn't want to sort of see it. And it was very much, um, you know, to your point around not having the right frameworks and the right strategies, even on a, even from professionals in terms of how to deal with this was very scant for you. Um, And, and I think that, you know, what I learned through, from reading your book, uh, well, there's many things, but one of the first things is that there's no such thing as getting over a death, which is, you know, well, I, I really want to dive into this happiness cult with you, but I think that we, um, there's no such thing as getting over it. It happens, and I think there's almost a death of who you were before. There's a there's a you know a Joanne before that happened, and there's a Joanne after that happened. Is that would you would you agree with that? Yeah, I used to actually say that, but my life was split into two segments: BC and AC before mm-hmm. shy and after shy. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 my address book was rewritten because people couldn't hold the pain. And, um, and I hear this a lot from grieving families, you know, that, that other people, the people they expect to show up for them have not shown up for them. Mm -hmm. And then here's the beautiful part is that some show up for them who they didn't expect to show up. So, and, and that is actually, it's life-saving when people show up for you, when you're in the depths of despair like that, Mm -hmm. it is life-saving. And I don't, I don't say that lightly. I don't say that in a trite way, it is life saving because there are few times when we need to feel held the way that we do when we're in deep um, trauma and grief. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had a few who showed up in a big way, including some of my animals. Um, You know, they didn't hand me Kleenex and tell me to get over it or why are you still crying? They just, I would cry, my dog, I would be sitting on the floor, you know, with my knees drawn up to my chest, rocking, trying to self-soothe, just Mm. sobbing and weeping. And my dog would just come and sit next to me and and put his head on me. And I distinctly remember thinking, this dog is smarter than most humans in my life right now. Yeah, smarter than the therapist for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and going full circle back to the therapist story, one of the things I'd like to tell your um, viewers about what happened with that last therapist, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was handing him pictures of my daughter, trying to, hoping that if he saw her face, that he would say, wow, oh, this is real. You know, this is a big loss. And he didn't, he, he glanced and, and hand, would hand them back to me very, very quickly. It, it felt like hot potato to me, you know? Mm-hmm. And I really just, did not feel any compassion from him at all. And he kept changing the subject when I would try to talk about her. Um, I ended up leaving the appointment early and I asked him on my way, I said, I have to go. And he said, well, I'm sorry, I, you feel I can't help you. And I said, do you have children? 
And he said, yes, I do, which surprised me because I thought if you have children, certainly you could imagine mm. that losing one of your children to death would be devastating. And I was surprised when he answered in the affirmative. And, and he said, and my wife is currently pregnant. We're about to have our next child. Mm-hmm. And I just said, well, I hope you never have to experience this. I was really angry, actually. And I paid and walked out. And um, I think, I can't remember, a couple months later, um, he emailed, he, no, he called. And I answered the phone. And he said, do you remember me? And I said, yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't like him very much at this point. Mm-hmm. And he said, I was calling to apologize. Our baby just died. Mm. and now I know how you feel mm. and um he was he was sobbing and I got in my car and drove over to his office and we talked and that was a real talk you know that was that was a talk from the heart which is what I really needed from him to begin with but mm-hmm. you know he couldn't he just couldn't hold that space for me and really uh when I like I'm a professor tenured professor at Arizona State University and when I was in school to get my doctorate I remember looking for a class on death and grief and I could only find one class. Um, and the one class was gerontologically focused. So it was focused on old people who die, right. which is really sad. I mean, it's sad when your 95 year old grandma dies. Uh, you want her to die as peaceful and as quote good a death as she could have, but it's not the same as your six year old dying of cancer. Right. And uh, they just didn't cover anything like that in the pedagogical materials at, at our university. And it was a huge university. So I, I created a class because there was no class. So at ASU, I teach a class on traumatic death and grief. Uh, but you won't find very many courses that cover this. And so, you know, we expect providers to go out there and be really good and be really, really competent when dealing with people in trauma and grief when they have very little training. And some of them are not experienced personally, and some who are experienced personally have never had an experience of fully inhabiting their own very deep, dark emotions. Right. Because, because they've, in a sense, been avoidant, just like the culture has told them. And I, I think even as a, as a thought experiment, it's hard to imagine. So just in preparation for my conversation with you, I was thinking that what would happen if I lost my child and just, I could feel my physiology changing, just thinking about it. So I can't even, and if I haven't expressed this yet, I'm so, so deeply sorry for your loss. And I know someone might think, well, 1994, you know, it's how many years ago she must be. It, it's, it, you know, one of the things you said in the book that I, that I loved was grief just like love. So the love that you have for your child is just never ending. And I think the grief uh, on the flip side of that yeah. is also just never ending. So of course, I'm so deeply sorry for your loss. And I think that, you know, if you can't even, I, I mean, I had, I had a hard time thinking about what would happen if my seven-year-old or my nine-year-old or my 14-year-old, I have three sons, what, what, what I, I was, I, I, I'm, I'm like, I felt my heart. I felt, you know, I felt sweaty. And um, yeah. so to ask, I think that there definitely needs to be more training for us to have more empathy, just like the therapist couldn't under, maybe he didn't want to go there. It was too, you know, traumatic or there'd been no professional training before. I think, you know, whether you're a clinician or this is just, you know, someone that's lost someone that's important to them, whether it's, and I want to define, I realize we haven't defined traumatic grief yet. So if it's a child or it's you know, through violence or you know, suicide, one of these things, um, to, to maybe 
and I, this is what I'd love to to dive in with you in terms of how do we as a as an individual, but also as a cohort, as a community, be able to hold more space for people. So let's let's define first. Let's define grief. Uh, because I think that that is, I, w- I was talking to my partner about our conversation and he's like, what, what is grief? What do we, what do you mean by grief? So maybe I think there's people understand what death is yes. and I don't know that people really understand what grief is. And then I want to go a level deep and then define the difference between traumatic and non-traumatic grief. Sure. My understanding of grief in the 25 years of practice I've had is that grief is the natural, normal reaction to the loss of someone we love deeply, mm. right? Mm. Um, you know, yes, you can have grief to other kinds of losses, um, but most other kinds of losses are remediable in some way, right? So death is irremediable. Like you don't get more time. You don't get a second chance. Mm-hmm. You don't get a do-over. There's no rewind button. If I, for example, love my job and I lose my job, I may have a kind of grief reaction to the job. I mean, some people would argue that. Uh, I say, yeah, but I might find a job that's better. <laughs> you know, maybe mm-hmm. I'll find something I love doing more. Right? That's remediable. Uh, I'm not going to find a better do- number four daughter. Right? I mean, right. I'm just not going to. It doesn't. It doesn't work that way when we love someone. I'm. I have one mother and I have one father, and they're not replaceable. And I don't get a do-over with my parents. Right? So it. It death is permanent. It's not reversible. And we get, and there's no way to go back and remedy the regrets we have, the time we didn't have, and the future memories that we've lost with that person. Okay. So I consider grief a normal emotional reaction. And there are many, many parts of grief. So the definition is very layered and very nuanced. So what is grief? It is a lot of things, right? It's, it's despair, it's anger, it's anguish, it's jealousy, it's rage, it's guilt and shame, it's fear, it's terror. I mean, it's so many emotions all encapsulated in, in an experience. It can also be, when people are ready, sometimes beautiful, even though painful. Mm-hmm. It can also be a great teacher, right? There are so many things that grief can be, all at too high a cost. Any of the, quote, positive uh, or, or um, affirmative aspects of grief always come at too high a cost for people who are grieving, right? It's never worth the price. It's like I'll pay. never, I'll, I'll, uh, it's not worth, yeah, it's not worth yeah. the price of admission. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then there's traumatic grief, right? And so um, I, I'll give you an analogy, which I think can help most, help most of your listeners to understand. If my, I'm going to pick an 85 year old grandma, because this is actually a, a similar story to something that happened to me in my practice. So I was working with two bereaved moms and one of them her 85-ish year old grandma died. She had uh, cancer, terminal cancer. Uh, she had a wonderful palliative care team at the hospice. She, she, her pain was well controlled. Um, when death was imminent, all the family came around, high cohesion, everyone holding hands, playing her favorite song. The candles were lit. The lights were down. Uh, it, it felt holy is the word she used. It was mm-hmm. a good death. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they cried and they miss her and they they're grieving for her, but it was not traumatic. I worked with another bereaved mom during the same period, whose grandmother also 
about the same age, was very independent, living alone. Someone broke into her home to steal something and, and her grandmother was murdered. That's traumatic. Mm -hmm. Do you see the difference qualitatively speaking? Yes. Right. Yeah. So there's a violence associated with it. It's completely unexpected. unexpected. Exactly. Yeah. And mm -hmm. no, no way to plan. You're not prepared. So, so traumatic, disfiguring, violent, sudden and unexpected. Uh, the death of a child at any age and any cause is considered traumatic, as mm -hmm. you can imagine. Because at what age do they stop being your baby? Yeah, never. Right. Yeah. right. I mean, I have a 33-year-old son. He's my baby, whether or not he, he mm -hmm. wants to admit it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that we, you know, there, there's, a, there's an overlap, certainly, right? But I think traumatic grief creates different bodily responses, different somatic responses. Uh, like when you were thinking about your, any of your three boys dying mm. and you can feel your heart starting to race and you're, you're even just thinking about it causes stress hormones to dump in your body. I was crying. I, yeah. my eyes and I, I, my sympathetics were just jacked. I was yeah. just like, no, I can't even, I don't even want to think about this. I need to get the hell away from this thought. So you can imagine I'm not a really welcome person at most parties, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's hard. It can be hard to occupy space with someone who does what I do because when someone comes up to me who doesn't know me and says, what do you do? And I tell them, and if they have children at home, they're like, They'll slowly back away. Yeah, they just, yes. it's terrifying. We've mm -hmm. actually written grants because uh, I, I run the, a nonprofit group called the Miss Foundation. We mm -hmm. provide aid to families whose children die of all ages mm -hmm. or are dying. And um, we write grants and we've actually had board, board members of grant committees say we couldn't read the grant. Well, sorry, we're, we can't give you money because we couldn't get through the grant. We why, all have do you, why do you think we're so terrified? What, what is, in your opinion, you know, we're terrified of death. I think we're, you know, you think, of, you look at society, everyone's obsessed about staying young, looking young, feeling young. And I, I think that there's a, there's a, you know, there's positives in that, but we are terrified of death. And I think simultaneously terrified of grief. Why? Yeah, I, I actually think we're, I actually think that we're getting a little bit better about death. There are like, for example, death cafes popping up all over, right? People what, is are getting, it, what is a death cafe? So, uh, uh, it's a group, you know, you, you run a death cafe, group of people who meet at a coffee shop and they talk about their own deaths, right? And okay. advanced directives and what happens when I die and all of those things. So mm -hmm. people talking about contemplating their own death. Um, so we're, we're getting better, much thanks to people like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right? Who's, who, who said, we have to talk about death, everybody, right? Mm -hmm. so, so we're getting better about talking about death. We're, we're far worse at talking about grief, especially when it's a child who dies or a young person who dies. If it's a spouse, I work with a woman whose, whose husband, very, very fit man, was running a marathon. And, um, you know, he, this was not uncommon for him. And he got to the finish line and collapsed. And he was 32 years old, mm -hmm. right? So we're not very good about talking about that. And here's what I think it is. I think that it creates a sense of vulnerability in people. That same reaction that you had, right? Some people would have had that reaction thinking about me and would have canceled the interview. Mm -hmm. it, it is terrifying. Like if I had never, if one of my children had never died, I would too, I too would have a hard time thinking about the possibility that my children could die. The reality is when we think about things like that, it actually can enhance our parenting. 
I mean, when we contemplate our own mortality, the mortality of people we love, we take less for granted, right? You know, that whole trite saying, every moment's a gift. I mean, everybody says that. But when you really think about the fact that I may never see, you know, like, like my 33-year-old walks out the door to get in his car to drive home, and if I contemplate the possibility that he might be in an accident and might die and I may never see him again, I'm going to make sure I don't leave anything unsaid. I'm going to make sure I say, I love you so much. Look in my eyes. I love you. And then he says, yeah, mom, I know you are kind of crazy, right? You know, I mean, those are the kinds of things that, that, that we... Because then we really get it. We really get the finitude. We really get this could be all there is. And if this this is all there is, I need to make sure that fill in the blank, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we, I think, you know, to your point, there's a, there's a fragility to life that I think that we don't often uh, think about. And when we're in the context of traumatic grief, I think that the natural human the condition is we want to ascribe a meaning to it. Why did this happen? This doesn't make any sense. What kind of world do we live in where a child can can die? Yes. Yes. You know, why did this happen? And that's probably that maybe that's where some of these platitudes. Well, God wanted an angel, whatever, whatever. Exactly. You know, all these things. And and I've heard those things at funerals. You know, God wanted this person more than than us. And you know, these these things that make you just feel. I mean, they make me feel uncomfortable because that doesn't seem like a logical explanation. Of course, I'm much more analytical than maybe the average person, but the um, the need to give it a reason, and when you can't find a reason for why there's a stillborn, you can't find a reason why someone dies of sudden infant death, when you can't find a reason for it, I think it messes up your understanding of the world. And I think that that may be, and may, I, I would love for you to comment on whether or not that's, if I'm onto something there, but I think oh, that people yeah, no, are no, just, no, no. Yeah. you know. Unquestioningly, you're onto something, Stephanie. So here's the thing. Like you take, it was recently the anniversary of the Sandy Hook school, shoot, school shootings. Right? Yes, 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 okay. yes. And so you take that and you say, I'm going to find meaning in that because I can't stand the thought that all of these children and some of the adults died that day mm-hmm. in school. Then there's no sense to that. I'm actually offended that someone would try to make sense of that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that if someone is going to make sense of their tragedy, that's between them and their existential self or them and their God. I don't think that anyone from the outside has a right to ascribe meaning. And in fact, one of the studies I did, that's one of the things that people said that grieving people said was one of the most unhelpful things that therapists did was try to find meaning in their personal loss. Mm-hmm. Therapists mm-hmm. need to stop doing that. It's not your job to find meaning in their loss. Let, you, can, you can create fertile ground. You can, you can, you can give the light and the, you know, the nutrients needed for the plant to grow, but you can't make that plant grow. Right. You have to, you have, we have to back off as therapists and be more and stop trying to fix the unfixable and cure the uncurable, right? We have to rather stay with our own existential angst when facing mortality, when facing the fear. We, you know, I tell therapists, I teach therapists all the time, act in love, not fear. Stop acting in fear. If you act in fear, almost always the decision for the other person is going to be the wrong one. Mm-hmm. Just act in love and then do your own work for goodness sake. 
Some of you have losses in your history as therapists. Some of you have your own pain that you have not dealt with. It, the onus of responsibility falls on you to do your own shadow work. If right. you have not done your own work, then you have no right dealing with people who have traumatic grief, especially. Right. Because what's going to end up happening is you're going to superimpose your own stories and your, the, own, the meanings that you've ascribed and your own belief system on that person and not necessarily hold space for them to That's right. just That's be. Right. It becomes about you right? Right. and your fear mm-hmm. and your unwillingness to, to face your own vulnerabilities. Irv Yalom, uh, you know, therapists are out there listening, uh, read Irv Yalom. Every book Irv Yalom has written, you know, because he's, he's really the guy. I mean, he doesn't talk specifically about grief and death, but he does about existentialism. I mean, existentialism, if you're going to do this work, you have to be an existentialist. Throw away CBT, throw away brief solution focused therapy, throw away the other interventions that are not existential. Existentialism is really the way. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna it's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Can you, uh, can you spend a moment? We'll put... Um... Herv Yellum is his name? Herv Yellum. Yellum. So I'll put that in the show notes as a resource for people. Can you define the difference between existential, uh, existentialism and you know, cognitive behavioral therapy? Or what, oh, what, yeah. <laughs> how much time do we have? But, you know. <laughs> um, I'm just not a fan of CBT as it relates to grief. You know, I, right. I am a mindfulness practitioner. I teach meditation. Mm-hmm. And really, if you are a meditator or if you are a person who knows about being in the present moment, then existentialism is at your core. Um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for those listening who are um, not familiar with therapy terms. So CBT is uh, a mostly cognitive process of taking a negative thought and um, changing it uh, so that you look at it in a different perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Which can work fine if your, you know, uh, nine-year-old wasn't, you know, murdered at the park, or if your, you know, baby, if you didn't wake up in the morning next to your dead baby, or you know, if your 19-year-old didn't die of cancer, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's just no way to spin that, mm-hmm. right? It's not that it's not that people don't find meaning. I mean, the Holocaust, millions died in the Holocaust and were tortured, and entire families were murdered, right? And it's not that people didn't find a life of meaning after that, they did, but it takes time. You don't just go, oh, I'll just replace this with this. I mean, it, it's just, it's a re- I mean, that's an oversimplification of the process, but, but it's a reductionistic. I mean, what we have to do is, um, you know, in, a, in the sense that, you know, the Sufi poet Rumi admonishes us, go deep into the wound. You have to go deep in. You have to stay 
in the darkest part of the darkness. And that's where transformation happens. We Post-traumatic growth or transformative experience is a real thing, right? Mm-hmm. But CBT is sort of like this coercive process of, you know, you take this and you make it this. Things can transform, but they take much more time. And we have to be, I think we put too much responsibility on the individual and not enough responsibility on, on the culture and the society in which the individual exists. We should be our brothers and sisters caretakers. We have a duty to each other to show up in moments of deep pain and tragedy to be there to support people. And we, we don't. And then we blame them when transformation doesn't happen, when they don't grow through their grief. We blame them instead of the poor soil in which they were planted, right? Instead right. of blaming the community who wasn't there. Um, I did a survey many years ago and we asked our families about their, for example, faith experience. Uh, more than 60% of our families left their church home. 60% of the families who had a church or a synagogue or a temple left their home faith community because of a lack of responsiveness after their child died. (laughs) I mean, if you can't get support from your faith community, there's something wrong. Right. So let's talk about, let's talk about community and then um, let's go into that because I, I think that this is an important topic and I'll, I'll parse this with a personal example and maybe you can give me some suggestions and, you know, coach me and hopefully this question is useful for the people listening. So I have a, I have a friend, I was actually just on the phone with him uh, before uh, you and I jumped on and known him for many years, respect him. He lives in a different city uh, than I do. And this past fall, his mother passed away unexpectedly. So she had a, you know, so it, was, it, it would be, it wasn't, you know, his, a child of his, but she had a stroke and then passed away. There was no, unexpected, yeah. very unexpected. Uh, you know, he took a long time off of work. Um, and, you know, of course, initially when that happened, I was sending him messages and little voicemails and little texts and things just to say, you know what, I'm here. Just want you to, you don't have to reach out back to me, but I just want you to know I'm here if you ever, you know, want to talk. And so we were exchanging some communication and then it kind of stopped. And I think that, well, I have, I have two parts to this question or two parts to the reason why I'm sharing this. One, I think there's a fear on my end so if I continue to reach out to him and say, how, how are you doing with mom? How, how are you doing with you know, the loss of mom? Do you want to talk? Is there any, there's a fear that I am intruding, that I might trigger him in some way, that this is inconvenient for him right now at the time. So there's that fear that stops me. Um, if you were coaching me to say, listen, this is how you can be a better friend to him. What would be some things that I could do as an individual and then potentially the, cause we have very, you know, we have very similar networks. You know, if there was like a, a communal thing that I could do or sure, to start, sure. what would be some things that you would suggest? Right. So, it, I mean, not knowing him, I'll give you some general advice, right? Yes. Because, because I think everyone is so different. I think that we, when we know someone, when we love someone deeply, we know them better, but here, here are some general guidelines that I give. First of all, uh, when I reach out to someone, I don't, I don't ask them for a response. And I know you said that, but when you say, how are you doing with mom? That's Mm -hmm. a question. So what I generally do is I say, I'm thinking of you and your mom. Right. That's great. 
Just mm-hmm. I'm thinking of you mm-hmm. because really that a lot of times, this is what I hear from brief people. I just want to know that people think about me and that people think about my pain and that people are remembering my person who died. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, um, texts are good. I think cards are almost always better. People love cards because it's tangible. It's in your hand. It's um, handwritten. It's handwritten. It's mm-hmm. personal. Um, you know, there are so many lovely cards nowadays. Um, uh, sometimes I will send the kind of card because I, it, you can get recycled paper that's plantable. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So it has seeds in it. Mm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they can go out in their yard and bury it and, you know, something will grow, mm-hmm. you know, a flower or basil or, you know, herbs or something will grow mm-hmm. uh, or it won't, but it's, you know, but it's recyclable anyway. So, um, uh, uh, the other thing is I, I like, I, you know, like I'll make a donation in honor of someone, like if someone very close to me, one, a family member has had someone die. Um, I will often make a donation to something that they love. Uh, you know, a lot of people I know because of, because I haven't eaten an animal since 72. So a lot mm-hmm. of people I know love animals. So I make a donation to help one of the animals here at Sella Care Farm, um, you know, to feed one of the animals or for vet care for one of the animals. So those are the kinds of things, or planting a tree in memory of someone um, as a community, you know, saying, you know, can we plant a tree at a park in memory of your mom? You know, I, I was thinking about this and I always ask permission. I don't do things without people's consent. I'll say, you know, I had this idea of planting a tree, if it requires something of them, not like a donation, but like if it requires them to show up for an event, Mm -hmm. you know, I say, you know, I'd love to plant a tree in honor of your mom at a public place. And this is a public thing. How do you, how would you feel about that? Or something like that, right? Generally speaking, I try not to ask for anything bereaved people, right? Right. Um, I I try not to ask questions. I try to just say, I'm thinking of you. And that's why a greeting card is such a lovely thing because you get a greeting card and you can just hold it in your hands and put it on your shelf or put it in your special box. And and it just, it doesn't require anything of me, right? Uh, It's the same thing with something like a meal train. Like uh, a lot of people I work with when their child dies, like for a month, they get a meal train. Unfortunately, sometimes the way people do meal trains is, you know, they come to your door and they knock on your door and then you have to open the door. And because you're in deep trauma and grief, you're still in your robe. And if you're, if you're inclined to be a people pleaser, you know, you open the door and then you say, oh, come on in because they were nice and made you a meal. (laughs) And then you have to feel, a lot of people feel like they have to entertain people when they're in the middle of their grief. Right. right. And what I say about meal trains is drop it off at the door, text the person in charge of the meal train and say the meal is at the door and then leave and don't ask anything else of the, of the, of the family. Does that make sense? Oh, that's, that's great. And you know, we, uh, that was something that we uh, typically my community, you know, my friends and social network here, we would do around a birth of a new, so a new mom with her, you know, new child, we'd say, gosh, she's like, you know, trying to figure out breastfeeding. She's not sleeping. Yeah. Let's all kind of pool our resources, make her some recipes, freeze them, you know, and, and kind of do that. But that also works in the, uh, in the, in the opposite for, for someone who's bereaved yeah. as well. That's a beautiful yeah. suggestion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I would just sort of 
say thinking of you and your mom uh, and don't forget them on mother's day you know for people who have lost a mother or for mothers who have lost a child or fathers who have lost a child mm. um father's day and mother's day is hard parents the separation of parent and child on those days are really hard that's a, i love that that's great and you had you had brought you had said something in your book around that too, where there was a child, there was a story that you were telling where there was a child who had lost her mother, and the teacher at the school had removed that child because she didn't. They were doing didn't know how to handle it, and she, yeah. you know the child actually had wanted to make a, a Mother's Day card for her mom, and that, that's great. I, I wanted to uh, just kind of expanding on this idea of community and the different cultural t- traditions, and I wanted you know maybe your your download on this. I, you know, my in-laws are Italian. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with the Italian culture. There's, you know, Greek culture, very similar. Sometimes when someone dies, there's, um, there's, you know, people are wailing and they're sobbing and there's even like wailers for hire. Like they will hire actors to come and like scream and pull their hair and stuff. And then when we look at some of the I think the way that we deal with death is so varied. And, you know, we look at the Mexican, uh, you know, the, I, I, I won't insult anybody's Spanish by pretending to say it, but like the day of the dead uh, where they cook the favorite meals of the person and the favorite beverages and they go and they decorate, you know, the cemetery. And I think in my observation of death, just socially, we, it, it terrifies us. We don't think about it. And, as a practitioner, so I, you know, my training is as a doctor of chiropractic. So I would, I would do a lot of, you know, pain-based healing with people. But often what I would find right under the pain is there's a lot of emotional dissonance as well. So I am very comfortable with people, you know, after an adjustment or after some body work, just the, this like this expulsion of emotion. So I'm very comfortable people crying in front of me, but I don't think that and I think as a clinician, that's one of the blessings that I've had for my training is to be able to hold space for someone and be okay with them not being okay. If somebody's listening to this and say, well, listen, I'm not a clinician. I'm not Dr. Cacciatore. I'm not, I don't have these, I don't have this training. What, what suggestions would you have for uh, doing their own work uh, in terms of their own shadow work. We've had Danielle Laporte um, on the podcast who talked a lot about shadow work and being able to shine a light on some of the darker parts that we tend to run away from and that are scared of. Has there been, uh, maybe in your own experience or your clinical observation, um, work that is, is profoundly meaningful in terms of being able to go inward and take some of the charge off of some of those, you know, society, you know, I'm, I'm using air quotes for those of you that can't see me, like these bad emotions, like the shame, the guilt, the rage, the fear, you know. The scary the- emotions, the emotions yeah. from, from which everyone runs, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a couple of things. Honestly, I, you know, I make a dollar for every book I sell. So mm-hmm. this is not about self-promotion, but the book um, that I have written is a really good start for people. I, I cannot tell you the number of people who read my book, who thought they were reading my book because their daughter's you know, eight-year-old just died. So their granddaughter just died mm-hmm. and they don't know, they want to provide support to their daughter and want to do it in a, in a compassionate way. So they read the book and they think they're reading it for their daughter. And then all of a sudden they realize that they didn't do their own work for their two-year-old who died in 1975. <laughs> right. Right. And you know, this stuff, this stuff, uh, the writer, Catherine Porter said, the past is never where we think we left it. Oh, 
That's, right. that's, that's good. We have got to start dealing with our own. And so my book is, a, it's 10 bucks or so on Amazon. It's a wonderful place to know if you feel like you're being cued. If you're reading this book and you're being cued, a lot of emotions coming up. I use the word cued instead of triggered. So if you're being cued and you're or activated, yeah, you're, you're hearing a lot of knocks on the door, you know, um, answer the door before it gets kicked down. Answer the door. And, and it's an easy, it's an easy read. I'll say that too. Bearing the Unbearable is the book. Yeah. Um, and it's not, uh, you do a really good job of storytelling and then parsing that with the lesson that you're trying to impart. So it's not uh, incredibly technical, but it's incredibly powerful and very useful. So Thank I you. think someone who is grieving will also find, a, you know, because I would, I would imagine that their attention span is not going to be what it was. Yeah. Um, They're two and three page chapters for a reason, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. So, I mean, I would start there. And, and if you find that you're being cued a lot as you're reading the book, then find someone who's really, really, really good and really well-trained. Please be careful about with about in whom you trust the most sacred holy parts of yourselves there are many therapists out there they may be very well intending but there are many who do not know what they're doing with traumatic grief especially mm -hmm. so please be very careful if you need some guidance you know reach out to the miss foundation which is the nonprofit i have we can help you find someone wonderful and i'll um, keep that in our show notes as well yeah yeah reach out to the miss foundation um uh you know, uh, we'll help, we'll try to help you find a really, really skilled clinician. Uh, I, I do a, a postgraduate training program, a four day certification training program with a lot of clinicians. We train twice a year. And uh, these are people who, who have been selected to be in our program. And so we recommend them and we'll try to help you find someone in your area. Uh, and then do your work, like do, like really do the work because it's worth doing. I mean, we have to, we have to remember people we love who died. We have to make space for them in our lives. Just because they died doesn't mean that they're not part of us anymore. Uh, whether they're our parents, our partners, our children, our brothers and sisters, you know, we need to remember them. We need to honor them. We need to, to be able to, on holidays, you know, you know, raise our glass of apple juice and say, I, I, I miss her. I miss him. We miss them. And I think that that is, it's, it's one of the things that is important in the, if there is a ritual or a rhythm or a cadence to grieving is, you know, not teaching yourself, that's not the right word, but allowing yourself, giving yourself space and permission to stay in your body. You had mentioned before, there's so much trauma in your body when you've experienced traumatic grief. Are there, um, and I, I wanted to, you just touched on, you know, raising your glass and, and being able to remember them. Are there rituals and rhythms um, and practices that you've noticed that help not, not get over someone, but um, integrate. To, to integrate and to allow the ritual and rhythm to sort of bring them back into their grief so that it can continue to be maybe a productive or, or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, ritual is incredibly important. Dr. Suki Miller in, in one of her books calls ritual the antidote to helplessness. 
mm. right? Really good. So um, I, I talk about lots of rituals in the book. You probably saw almost every example had what I call either a micro ritual or macro ritual. A, a bigger ritual can be something like a toy drive or, uh, you know, organizing a kindness project uh, or a run or something to raise money for charity. Uh, you know, you can do those. But then there are the simple rituals. You know, I work with a bereaved dad and you know, one of the greatest pains that he had was he and his son every morning had a ritual, you know, good morning, son, good morning, dad. I love you, son. I love you, dad. That was their every morning thing, right? Every single morning. And when his son died, you know, that the next morning, this, you can imagine the steering silence in the house, right? So the next morning, um, you know, he, he, it was unbearable. The silence was unbearable for him. And that was one of the first things he said when we started working together. And I said, well, what would happen if you said it anyway? And he said, if I said what? And I said, I love you, son. Good morning, son. I love you, son. And he said, can I do that? And I said, I think you can. Do you think you can? And, you know, I mean, sometimes people need permission, right? Yes. And uh, so he started, that became his ritual. And I think it was the third or fourth morning, maybe. I can't remember exactly. But he said, he, the next appointment, he came in and he was just weeping when he was telling the story he said i i said it i did it and i said and how was it and he started to he couldn't get the words out and he said uh i heard him oh you know and you know of course that comes with pain it gets me it gets me weepy you know yeah. of course that comes with pain of course it does mm -hmm. of course it does but would we rather forget them just so we don't have the pain? To me, that would be worse than having the pain. That pain is honest pain. It's honest pain. Mm -hmm. um, the other pain is fear pain. You know, the pain of, of being afraid to actually feel what we feel. And for me, that's, that's just not an option. And I think for most people, when they, when they have a safe place, and, and some help in approaching rather than turning away. Um, I think for them, it's worth it too. I see it every day. And you begin to trust yourself with the pain as yeah. well. I think that some, I, you've said this in the book and I've heard you say this elsewhere that I think we run from it or we avoid it because we are, we don't trust ourselves with those deep feelings. And when yeah. you begin to, have this self-agency and this, this ability to trust yourself with these deeply catastrophic emotions, then you can come, not, um, you can move through it and, and not out of the other, uh, on the other side of it, but you can begin to move through it and take that, that energetic charge because what, you know, the, and the reason why I was introduced to you because we were talking about addiction. And if you, if you bypass the grief, if you don't, go into it, you are much more susceptible to things like, I mean, food addiction is, is the thing that I commonly see, but you know, it can be porn, it can be technology, it can be work, it can be alcohol, you know, all these different things. And, and, to, and you, I think there was a chapter in your book that was entitled, if you bypass grief, then you are going to bypass love as well. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and to bypass grief really, because your heart knows what's happening. So to bypass it, what you really have to do is numb out. And mm -hmm. that's how we 
that's the, that's our you know our, all of our clever distractions right so if we're telling ourselves i'm not supposed to feel this i don't want to feel this or i can't feel this because i can't bear it because it's going to annihilate me if i feel it right all the stories that we tell ourselves about our incapacity to bear the pain um, then you then the only choice you have is not to feel it so how do you not feel something that you actually feel you have to numb it and drugs and alcohol porn all the things the, the clever list of things shopping consumerism the internet Facebook phone games mm -hmm. gambling I mean I mean human beings are quite creative as it comes to avoiding our own feelings it, it's an inevitability the, the problem is that we we exist in the West, at least. We exist in a culture that tells us, don't feel. And then when the person becomes an alcoholic because, you know, her mother died when she was 12, and everyone said, don't feel, don't feel, don't feel, don't feel, don't be sad, don't be sad, don't be sad, don't. And so, so she starts drinking so she doesn't feel. Then mm -hmm. we blame her for being an alcoholic. Right. It's and this, the, is, this is the definition of trauma, right? Not being able to bear. It's the proverbial victim blaming, though. It's the proverbial victim blaming. Mm -hmm. And because the person can't cope any other way than to numb out because she exists in a world that's telling her she's not allowed to feel or be who she really is. And I would imagine once you start to internalize those messages, the shame and the guilt around needing to connect, because that's, you know, there was, um, there was a TED talk, I believe his name was Johan Hari, and he was talking about addiction is just a lack of connection. So if, if someone's lost their child or their mother or some, and they're using alcohol as a way to numb out, and then that becomes their source of connection or their source of disconnection from their feelings, it's, it's unfair to say, don't feel your feelings, but you can't also connect with this other thing that makes you feel good as well. That's exactly right. And it's and Johan Hari is who you're talking about, the yes. book Lost Connection. I think it's chapter three. The whole chapter is about me. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, you'll, you would like his book, actually. I, I love his TED Talk. I, will, I actually I will pick up his book. That is a great suggestion. Yeah, Thank you. Lost Connections. I think you would like it. And I can make that introduction if you want to talk to him. I would love that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. He's a wonderful guy. Yeah. Um, I have a question that... Um, I think many parents listening would, uh, and myself as a parent, this is a selfish and hopefully also a communal question. If you have somebody that dies, so when your daughter died, how do you, how do you explain death to a child? So I've had, you know, my grandmother died and, you know, when she, when she died, I, I, I don't know if I did this right, but I said, you know what, grandma, you know, uh, my, we call her Sito, that's the Lebanese uh, word for grandmother. You know, Sito is, uh, she was not feeling very well. She was in the hospital and she stopped breathing and, you know, she's not going to be back. And, you know, mommy's really sad because mommy had a really important kid, like my grandmother, my Sito was a really uh, important figure in my life. And, um, I felt after that conversation, like I totally messed up. I was like, I don't know. How are you supposed to, like they were, they were um, six and four at the time. And how do you explain? I mean, and tell me if I, if I screwed up my children for life as well. <laughs> I actually think what you did was, was really appropriate, especially given their age, right? I mean, you said grandma stopped breathing. I mean, yeah. with children, the general rule is to be honest and direct and keep it simple. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Answer all their questions. So sometimes children, not all children, but sometimes children ask hard questions, sometimes mm -hmm. morbid questions. What yeah. happens to their body? Are they going to bleed? You know, what happens when they go in the ground, right? And so I, I coach people all the time about just be honest with them, be direct with them, answer their questions, 
in a simple way as you can while being honest. I, I do encourage people, I say it's okay to talk about your religious beliefs and your spirituality, but it's important to talk about the body versus the spiritual body. If you believe that there's an afterlife, uh, it's a, of course fine to, to talk to your children about that, but also make sure that they know that the physical being of, did you say sitka? Sitto. S-I-T-O, yeah. Mm -hmm. The spiritual body of, the physical body of Sitto, Sitto's physical body, we won't see again. Mm -hmm. And whatever you believe about the afterlife, you can also share with them, but it's important that, that we delineate for children, like the physical body. Like I'm never, like grandpa or grandma or brother or sister or mommy and daddy, where their physical body is gone. We're not going to see them again Mm -hmm. in this way on the earth. And, and that, and you said, and I'm very sad. I mean, you know, I think you did. I think that was remarkably. Oh, oh I'm so thankful. I, I, I walked away from that, like my head hanging because I didn't want to say something like, well, she fell asleep in this world and woke up. I just, it just seemed to, uh, and it's wishy-washy for me as well. So I was like, this is what happened. She went to the I mean, hospital. Neutral, right? They, they, you know, if you say grandma's, grandma, grandpa's asleep, you know, they're like, well, wake them up, you know, uh, right. you know, tell them to wake up from that other world and come back to this world. So, mm-hmm. you know, being very literal, um, you know, at some point you can get more abstract, you know, sometimes with, with older teens or sometimes teens, and, but it depends on the child too, or the right. adolescent as well. But I mean, sometimes you can speak in more abstract ways, but I think it's very, very important for children for us to be honest, direct, and keep it simple. And do do children grieve in the same way that adults do? Do do they have... No. (laughs) Not at all. Uh, I mean, most children uh, are what we call intermittent grievers. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, and a lot of adults mistake that for they're not really grieving. And so what that means intermittent grieving is like, you might have a, a seven-year-old whose father dies. And, uh, so he's crying and I miss my dad and that may continue for 30 seconds. And then all of a sudden, you know, he pops up and says, I'm going outside to play. And then he runs outside and he's playing like nothing happened. And that can get very confusing for adults in the family. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, because, you know, at first all the, you know, they, they're paying attention to him and, oh, trying to comfort him. Um, and intermittent grieving, I think children, my sense about this is children at up to a certain age uh, or developmental stage get to a place where they start to feel overwhelmed by their emotions. And when they do, they sort of abbreviate it and say, okay, I'm going to do something different until I can handle it again. And so you see more of a, of a vicissitude. A moving between expressing emotion and playing. A lot of it tends to be sort of distraction with play and moving the body. And that might also be sort of the body's wisdom, right? Of, yeah. Okay, let's let this move. Let's let the, the word emotion, as I talk about in my book, comes from a Latin word, movir, which is to move through. Mm-hmm. So emotions move. It's an energy. It's a force. And so maybe with children, it's a matter of, you know, having all of this emotion and then they have to move it literally through their body. And so they go out, play, run around. Um, and so they're intermittent grievers and they express quite differently than, than, uh, than adults. So, a, you know, a four-year-old whose baby sibling died, whose baby brother just died, is not going to come in one morning um, you know, feeling the heaviness in the home and the deep sadness in the home, having his own experience of grief, he's not going to come into mom one morning and say, mom, you know, 
having a lot of emotional pain. I, I really miss my brother. And I'm wondering, could we sit down and have a conversation? No, what he's going to do is throw his toys or, you know, or, no, or cry more often. Or maybe he might um, develop uh, aneurysis, wet his bed, or mm -hmm. regress in terms regress. of uh, development, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, because children don't articulate up to a certain age the way that adults do, it comes out, tends to come out more behaviorally. And it's, it's interesting, and I think this, this is a, a good segue here, when we look at the animal world, when there's been a trauma to the animal, they just kind of shake, right? Like they'll, you know, they'll just kind of shake it off. Um, and there's value in that. So when we look at our children who are not yet, you know, adults, who, who do not yet have that fully formed frontal lobe and do not have that, as you were saying, that vernacular and that expertise in their EQ to be able to say, this is what's bothering me and why. I mean, I would argue that many adults don't even have that, that capacity. Um, I, I think that this is, you know, what's so interesting about your work is that you use animals as a way to, uh, or to create space for people to grieve. Can you talk, uh, talk, talk to us about the care farm that uh, Well, I would be run? happy to talk about the care farm. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's just that we had a beautiful event here yesterday with almost a hundred people for, for the holidays. Uh, we have almost 40 rescued animals. So they've all been rescued, mostly farm animals. Um, they've all been rescued from anything from homelessness and hunger to torture. Um, and they're, um, they're absolutely amazing. I mean, some of these animals come here terrified. If you even look at them, they run away. If you turn toward them, they look away. They run away. And, um, and within many of them, within a month or two months, you know, they're, they're standing with you, you know, nuzzling with you and trusting you. It's really an incredible, um, an incredible process for them. It's amazing what love and compassion can do for a hurting heart. And so uh, the families we, we care for, whose children are dying or have died or whose brother or sister has died or whose father or mother or partner has died, um, come here and they interact with the animals and they get to help us care for the animals and uh, they get to spend time with the animals and the animals ask nothing of them. Um, they just spend time with them. Like I said, like with my dog, you know, I would cry. My dog didn't hand me tissues and intimating here, clean it up. Right. right. My dog just laid next to me and accepted exactly how I was. And that's what these animals do for people. Uh, you know, we, we here at the, at the care farm, we laugh and we cry and we remember. We had a bereaved mom here yesterday uh, who came and in her bag, she had brought her children's ashes. Uh, her twins died and um, Sam and Gabe. And she brought them her, their ashes with her in the bag. And she leans over and she goes, I brought the boys, they're in the bag. You know, mm -hmm. and I'm like, why are you whispering? Mm -hmm. Everybody does that here. You know, it's, right. it's, it's, where, it's where we say, yeah, we're going to remember that. We have all kinds of people's ashes spread here on the care farm. Brothers and sisters and children and parents, uh, their ashes are spread here because it's a place where it's okay. Not only okay where we embrace remembering them. It's unlike any other place I've ever been. It's, it really is amazing. And uh, these animals just really love people. They really do. It's, it's given what other humans have done to them and the, 
the horrible things that other humans have done to them, the fact that they can trust again, it, it gives us all a little morsel, maybe a crumb of hope. I, I love what you're creating. And, and to be quite honest, I think that you know, this community where you are, you know, encouraging people to talk about their feelings and encouraging people to sit in their bodies and being in service to the animals. I think that this is really how the entire world really should, should be rallying around grief and rallying around our, you know, our, our people, like sitting in circles the way we've done for millennia and just having, having a chat, you know, having, um, having a powwow. Yeah. Well, and this is a pilot. So, so the plan is that this, I'm collecting data. I'm a researcher. So I'm collecting data. I'm looking at what's working and what doesn't work. What doesn't work will jettison. What works will, will enhance it. will, will go deeper. We'll work with it and develop it more. Mm-hmm. And the plan is to have something like this all over the world. I mean, I have people who work with me who come from Cambodia, New Zealand, Paraguay, Mexico, Canada, Spain, Italy, everywhere. Mm -hmm. I have people who come here. For me, it's like, you shouldn't have to travel around the world to come to a place like Sela Care Farm. You should Mm -hmm. be able to to drive a half an hour out of the city and go um, anywhere. And, you know, and what a gift that is for everyone, for the animals who have suffered deeply and for the humans who suffer deeply and then for the earth. Because one of the things that we're finding from some of the initial data that we, that we are starting to extrapolate and analyze is that people um, start becoming more healthy too. When they leave here, they, they have an awareness about getting more sun and moving their bodies more and, uh, and being out in nature more and taking better care of the earth because we're sustainable too. So we have solar and we don't use any chemicals and, um, and, and we have our own well. And, and so, you know, it's a sustainable care farm and we take care of the earth here. And so people are starting to wake up to, oh, yeah, there's me and there's my pain and all of this, you know, agony that I have. And that energy can be used when I'm ready to make a more beautiful world. Um, and I say, you know, um, not because they died, because nothing is worth that, but because I'm still alive, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm still here. And what can I do with my life that honors her while I'm still here? Does, does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it's it's so beautifully said. And you give lots of examples like that in the book. And um, I just, I just want to thank you because, you know, creating something like this care farm is it sounds utopian and really what we as humans should should be doing anyway so um if people want to find you if they want to find sell a care farm where can i direct them where can i where can people find you on the internet or or in yeah, person we have a website um sell a care farm s-e-l-a-h carefarm.com okay and, uh, and um yeah of are course, you on social do you have a social media or you know, i do i have i have twitter just, mm-hmm. uh, i think my twitter is just dr underscore catchatory mm-hmm. and then i have a very active facebook page dr okay. joanne catchatory and uh that's very active i post a lot of a lot of things about grief Sella care farm also has a, a facebook page and uh you can meet lots of the animals on there it's it's really it's amazing. If you want to see pictures of the event yesterday, you should go check it out. Sella is Sella Care Farm and Respite House. It's it's very cool. We soon we've just started construction on a uh, thirty six hundred square foot uh, six room house with a thousand square foot training room, education and support group room, um, and so people will get to come and actually stay here 
and get an immersive experience. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Joanne. This has been an enlightening conversation. And I know that even though it's a difficult subject, it's a necessary one to have. So I want to thank you for just not only the breadth of work, but you have clearly also done your own work to be able to talk about this in the in the way that you do. And you know, your passion really is just exuding from you as you're talking. I can you are doing the work that um, that this world really needs. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Asima, and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.